thank you so much for joining us today. It's so, um, anyway, for, um, for our listeners, I can't wait for them to be able to learn a little bit about apraxia because mm -hmm. like we were talking about uh, earlier, so few people know about it. So Leanne, you have six children. I do, <laughs> I do. <laughs> and you work as a financial planner that you have your hands full. Tell us a little bit about what you do for a living, how you juggle all your kids. Well, <laughs> I, I have them all spread out. So the oldest one will be 22 next month. Uh, I just had one turn 18 this week. Uh, and the okay. baby, he'll be four the first week of April. Oh, wow. Or, sorry, May. Jeez. <laughs> so I have an 18-year-old, 18 18-year uh, spread in there. So uh, thankfully, they're not all together. Otherwise, I wouldn't be able to do anything. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm sure as a financial planner, you worked all the financial part of having six kids out well, too. I, I don't know how. <laughs> oh. it, it's like a lot of um a lot of planning a lot of uh deciding being very um very um controlled in what we want to spend on and um very precise in our decisions about you know where we want to spend it especially when you have children with um that are not neurotypical uh a lot of uh spending around therapies and and little items that will help them um you know have a better future, I guess. Yeah. So, yeah. so tell us what is apraxia? Uh, well, there's a couple different kinds of apraxia, actually. Um, I just learned the second one. Um, oh. <laughs> I went to have my three-year-old evaluated because we've suspected him to have apraxia since he was one. And three years is kind of when they um, look into it or diagnose. They want to give them enough time to really start speaking to, before they give them that diagnosis. Apraxia, the way they describe it to, described it to me when I first learned about the diagnosis was it's a motor planning problem. Um, basically, your brain knows exactly what you're saying, but when it comes to the mouth, it, the mouth is not functioning in a way that puts those letters, those sounds out like a typical Brainwood. Uh, they said that to learn a new word for an apraxia child or an adult, really, a, nor a neurotypical person could take a few times to say the word right. It may take up to a thousand times for the child to be able to say that word properly. So, and, and it's because they have to go and rewire their brain to be able to get out the same sounds that we do. It's very similar to a stroke patient, for example. Uh, and that would be another way that you can get apraxia is through things like stroke, where that that part of your brain is now, I, I don't know what you want to call it. It's it's no longer working properly. Yeah. So they they have to rewire basically. And it takes a very long time to get that through. Um, and then the other one that I just learned was just oral apraxia. And that's um they suspected my one son to have it because um if he were to say uh for example, like that, you have the sounds that come together. Well, his lips go like this, right? like like that. Or um, stuffing of mouths. They can't tell there's all that food in there. So they just stuff their mouths full of food to have that sensory input 
to know to chew. And he's seven years old. And he looks like a little squirrel when he eats. I'm like, maybe he does have that. <laughs> so. Oh, wow. Yeah. So how common is apraxia? It's actually not very common at all. Um, I believe I, I believe I heard that maybe one-tenth of children that have speech delays or speech disorders may have apraxia. So it's a percentage of a percentage of yeah. the population. So. Interesting. Wow. Well, thank you so much for educating me on that and everyone else, because I've heard, you know, quite a few people within the circle that I spend most of my time <laughs> talk about apraxia, but I, and I assumed it was similar to dyslexia because it has an X in it and an E, but they are, you know, very different, um, except for it's a nerve, you know, brain stems from the brain. Mm -hmm. but, yeah. With the praxia and a lot of the eas, <laughs> with a lot of them, it they have comorbidities. Um, so yeah, the dis do too. <laughs> yeah, and uh, I know uh, my son has just. Um, we just had a meeting for from the school. The our school has been very um, has been very good about not trying to to uh, put barriers up about getting testing and. Um, he is now going to be tested for dyslexia and dysgraphia, wow. dyscalculia, and only because it, it kind of runs the, along the lines of um, when he's writing, he can write words just fine, but when he goes to write sentences, everything just falls apart, just like his speech. He is he's doing really good where he is mimicking just fine. He can say words properly, but when he puts them in a sentence, or if he gets too fast or his thoughts are too fast for what his his mouth can handle, it kind of falls apart and then you can't understand him anymore. And, and that's now what's happening with his his writing. So, so they're just trying to hit this and nip it in the bud, I guess, um, before he gets too much older. That's amazing that they have testing for all three in Ohio. I did not know that dyscalculia testing was available anywhere in the country. I mean, um, in a school setting, of course. Yeah, I'm not sure. Yeah, I'm not exactly sure what they're going to do about that part of the testing. But I, um, I just as a, a parent, which I'm sure most people do, I, I go and um, have my child see private therapy as well, um, just to give them an extra boost up, boost up. And I have talked to the OT department there and between the SLP for him talking to the OT, they're going to, they're doing their battery of tests. They said OT does kind of like the whole gamut of all of it. So that's great. Well, if he needs any kind of dyslexia, dysgraphia or dyscalculia tutoring, we're here for you. <laughs> that's great because that's where he's going next. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, and it's, that's been the really nice thing about COVID is we can tutor anywhere in the country. It doesn't matter where people are anymore. So. It is. It's so nice. It really is. Um, and he picked up really well for online for even for speech. He's done really well with online therapies. Um, yeah. Um, I mean, who would have thought that you could do speech therapy online? Yeah. They, they've made everything, most things work, you know, virtually. Mm -hmm. 
Yep. And it's kind of funny because uh, she'll ask us to put a mirror up beside the computer and then she'll tell him to grab his own face or, you know, doing everything. So it's so funny watching it. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's awesome. So do you want to share anything else with us about dyspraxia or your um, financial planning? Um, well, I'm trying to think. Um, I think that's about as much as I know, as far as apraxia goes. Um, Any recommendations for people if they live somewhere where their schools aren't as cooperative? Private, private testing. Um, that's where we started. And who would they go to for private testing? Well, for me in Ohio, I, uh, my children go to Nationwide Children's Hospital. You can, um, the, an SLP can get started. A lot of times, apraxia is not diagnosed until at least three. That's kind of their sweet number for um, diagnosis, but there's telltale signs of apraxia, not babbling when they're supposed to. Uh, my son, he was almost three and a half and he didn't have one word. And um, so I would say there's a lot of telltale signs. If anybody has access to a Help Me Grow program, that's usually a federally funded program, comes out of your taxes and um, you can have them come to the house and they can uh, work with your child. The one that I had, she was so knowledgeable in the area. And she's like, I really think he has a praxis, especially since big brother has it. Um, so that helped out with that. And then she was more, she was able to help us get into a preschool program getting his IEP. They helped set up the IEP for school or helped um, coordinate it with the school system to get that all set up. So he was on an IEP since right as soon as he turned three years old, he was put into school. Um, that really helped. That helped a lot. Having that peer support and the peer modeling, he is now he's still not talking a lot, my three-year-old, but he is leaps and bounds better than what he was. He's, he's saying more than one word at a time and he's actually talking within six months or so. And is he in general ed class or is it kids? It's, um, it's a combination class. So because it's preschool, they have neurotypicals alongside the children with IEPs. It's about 50-50 and the neurotypicals, um, they're, they're great modelers. So it's really, it's really kind of nice actually. <laughs> and, and he has, he has both of my sons had a, or have apraxia and both of them, as soon as they started preschool, it just picked up so much better for them. And, and you can tell the growth spurts that they have. Um, usually it's after, as soon as they get back into classes for the fall, both of them had a huge growth spurt. And then there was a lag because we had COVID out and we were out two months for school. But as soon as they went back in, both of them had another big growth spurt with their language. Wow. So it's, it's really well, nice to see. Definitely the socializing helps them with the, the yes. picking up the yes. words. I mean, even with, with four other or five other siblings. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and and, and it's, it's so different with your siblings. Your siblings can talk to you, but I mean... I know with my siblings, I was like, whatever, I don't, I don't hear you. I you know I don't see you. And, and that's kind of what's going on at the house, especially when I have an 18 year old or 18 year gap between the uh -huh. oldest and the youngest, 
I have my older three, I have um, 15, 18, and 22 almost. And then the younger three is nine, seven, and three. So, and those younger three are boys and boy, do they, they'd rather fight than talk. (laughs) (laughs) But um, another thing is, if you can, if I know with my son, um, he was able to qualify for social security because it's such a significant barrier with his peers and everything. And that's helped be able to pay for extra services that need it, like, like tutoring, for example. That's amazing. So, so I would definitely um, consider it. I had a little bit of a barrier. Um, well, especially with COVID and then we got cut down with a lot of hours. So we qualified financially because of being cut down with hours. And at first I had a barrier. I didn't want to think, um, you know, that I, I didn't want to think that I was taking it away from somebody else, but at the same time, I want my, my kids to have that extra help and to have those um, services available to them that we can pay for now. And, um, and then that's what we did. So I would, I would definitely look into the social security program in their state to see if they qualify, if they have apraxia. I don't know how that works for dyslexia or anything. Um, yeah, there's nothing. It, it, well, it depends where you are, what kind of services you get. Yes. Um, but most states don't provide services in the school at this point. And the states that are starting to provide services in school, it's not the best because, <laughs> you know, you're in a group setting. And it just, when you're in a group setting for dyslexia, it's not ideal. One on one is ideal because, yes. um, un, you know, unlike with the apraxia where the mimicking helps, when you're in a group setting for language arts, you're going to have to go the slowest as a slowest student can go. And if someone's out that day, they can't move forward because everything builds on itself in Orton-Gillingham. And they've got to be using an Orton-Gillingham program or that's not going to help a dyslexic person. See, and I'm glad you said that. I've never heard of that. So now I get to look something else Oh, yes. Orton-Gillingham. It's been around since the um, 30s. Okay. um, That is... There's so many different programs out now, mm-hmm. but, but they have to have an Orton-Gillingham base. Um, and there's a lot of different Orton-Gillingham type of things, mm-hmm. but it's because it's systematic, the way it's taught um, that the kids are able to, or the adults are able mm-hmm. to take in the information at so much um, quicker of a rate. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. See, that's with uh, with apraxia. They also um, the suggested therapy for apraxia, and I'm not sure for dyslexia, but for apraxia is three to five therapies per week, and um, at least thirty minutes. It's best if it's an hour. Yeah, our school does not provide that. <laughs> our, I I am lucky if I got a hundred and I think it's 120 minutes a month for my son. It's I mean they've done really well as far as getting them the testing they need, getting the diagnosis they need. They're not so great with giving the minutes it, it, a lot. And I'm sure this goes everywhere. Um, it's un, everybody's understaffed. And um, so they just kind of throw people in. They're like, oh, well, we'll have the speech therapist come into the classroom. And I'm like, okay, but that's not the actual best therapies for them. The best therapies are one-on-one, uh-huh. rapid repetition, 
Um, they have, they've only have a couple programs where they've actually done um, research backed studies and peer reviewed studies on it. And um, it's basically is you say nonsense words, words that have no meaning. So it's just as long as like, if you or I could go in and read these words with the right intonations, even they're just, they're nonsense words, they don't even exist. Um, they use those words and just make them like they drive it in a hundred times, hundred repetitions per word. And they found that that helps. Uh, the schools aren't always on board, but I, again, I have a really good SLP. She took the time over the summer to learn the program that I sent her. So that's what she does. My son loves the therapy. He, he does get 20 minutes every week privately just to do that therapy. But, but yeah, I mean, it's so hard for, I mean, because the school's understaffed. So it's kind of like, you can't squeeze blood from a turnip. And then, like you said, it, it's a building process. So it, it's, it's so difficult. <laughs> but, well, and you know, we use nonsense words. Do you too? Yeah. To make sure that the student can read the word or spell the word without just memorizing it. Because oh, wow. dyslexic people will often memorize to a certain point Yep. And then they've reached their wall of where they can memorize things. That, that's apraxia and that's my son. And that's why we're working on making sure he doesn't have dyslexia or dysgraphia or dyscalculia, you know, there, because like, like you said, at a certain point, there's, there's a wall, you can't memorize everything. Right. And, and that's what, um, that's what they're trying to make sure that he isn't hitting that wall because that's what he's doing. He can memorize words. He can memorize spelling tests. But if you have him try to sound out the word, he can't do it because it's, it's all, you know, getting jumbled up up there. And then the word he, he's no longer able to spell words that, or even read words in his, um, his sight words, like for example, would, should, could. He can see them, he can read them from that sight word list because it's mechanical memory. But then when you put it in a book, he's like, I don't know what that word is. It's like, okay, dude. <laughs> so, and it, it's just amazing how the brain works. Like, and it's amazing how these kiddos can do things like memorization. They're, they're creating their own coping mechanisms oh, to be yeah. able to cheat the system, if you will. Yeah, and, that, that's a um, great way of saying it. Yes, and they do. And I mean, he's phenomenal. He's a he's an awesome memorizer. He can he can spell words that he memorizes. But to be able to spell words, just to say, okay, spell what? And you tell him if you give him the words, he'll memorize it. He spells it for you. But if he had to sound things out, well, what's kind of a hard one? But cake or something, you know, he um, he can't spell those. Like he might put C A C. Well, cake is a hard one too. That is, um, that is too. Because we don't teach silent E's until like a year and a half into our program because silent E's are so hard. He memorized that rule though. And he knows the E's at the end makes that the long sound or whatever. However, they taught it. He does. I, yeah, I'm, I'm not. The sound at the end. Huh? The E's don't make any sound at the end. Well, well yeah, I know they don't, but they make the sound in the oh, middle. Oh, the other letter long. Yeah, yep, yeah, yep. Yeah. And and he knows that. And it's kind of amazing that he, but he, again, he's memorizing these rules. To be able to just spout them off, he can't do it. But yeah, it's all about memorization. And and if we can get them 
while their brains are so like, while they're still learning, these are, this is the best time to learn like foreign languages, to be able to learn our language and proper things. And before it starts settling into these more like typical pathways or more, you know, defined pathways, this is the best time to get them out. You know, I took a, um, a class in a workshop that I went to, and they were talking about the brain is most, um, absorbent for foreign languages up until age 12. Yep. And in America, we don't start teaching them a foreign language until they're 12. And, oh. and math is better the other way around. They're not, brains aren't ready for math until mm -hmm. they're 12. And then when they're 12, they're more ready. But, you know, we're teaching them math when they're in kindergarten and first grade. I mean, yeah, you can teach them basic things. But it would make more sense to Switch flip that. the time around that was spent doing those subjects. Yep, yep. And I know with my school, when I was in high school, we didn't start language until ninth, tenth grade. So we were like 14, 16. Wow. Yeah. It's like, yeah. wait a minute. Yeah. And I learned that. And I'm like, why in the world would you start? And it's probably because math is, you know, is binary to up to a point until you start doing reading problems. But they use different parts of the brain. Yes. So, yeah. And, and and that's probably why my son is top of his class in math as opposed to reading. Uh, he has 100% in his sciences, his maths, but his reading and his, his writing is about 65% right now. So, and it's like, well, we know that he has the ability. It's just because of that language and where it gets all mixed up in there, it affects spelling, it affects reading, it affects writing, it affects storytelling, it affects all this stuff. Everything. And, I, and I assume you couldn't get an accurate I, IQ test score either. Um, well, they are going to do an IQ test on them. I'm not sure. We just had that meeting a couple weeks ago. So I think they have a couple more weeks before they well, have to do all that testing. Take, take that with a lot of grain of salt. Yeah. Grain oh, yeah. Of salt. <laughs> yeah, because, um, you know, with my daughter, she couldn't read uh, when she got tested for the first time in fourth grade. Um, so she scored really, really low. Mm -hmm. And I didn't understand back then, but it was because she was not able to read the grade level work that the test expects you to be able to read. So if yes. you can't read it, you know, it, it excuse the whole testing. And it's, it's very discouraging. It's discouraging for the parents. It's discouraging for the children. The children at that age, they they really don't know what's going on anyway at that point, but they can read, they can feel your emotions when you see this stuff. And it, it, it sends off those vibes like, oh, I might've done something wrong. And it's they didn't do anything wrong. We didn't do anything wrong feeling upset about it, but you know, it, kids can't read that. So, so it's, so then they put into their head, their own head, they have to create these stories, you know, to feel like, oh, why was mom upset about this? And they could say, oh, I'm a bad student or whatever their story is that they made up because they, their, their mind has to make up a story to make, make things understandable to them. So it, it's just it, the whole psychology of it. Yeah. Well, and I mean, if, if you're thinking, well, I'm a bad student, then you're going to become that because no. you're not going to have any expectations for yourself. And 
they yeah. start to feel bad anyway because that's all they hear is from the different various places and they see it you know and yeah. what's that like and and it uh, it's kind of traumatizing i you know, I, I couldn't imagine, I, I didn't have those kind of problems. Uh, we were talking before this that I may have ADHD. I'm, <laughs> I'm kind of all over the place. And, and now that I reflect on my childhood, I'm like, oh, I probably do, I probably do have it <laughs> because of I've had the problem all the way through school, you know, oh, I'm a bad student. So, or my thing was I'm a perfectionist. And if I didn't think I could get a perfect score, I was like, whatever, I ain't going to do it at all. Um, you know, and all that stuff. And it plays into who you become as an adult. My son is a, a big perfectionist. Uh, he is over the moon with math because he can do it. So he's, but when it comes to reading, we're fighting. <laughs> this kid is just like, I'm not doing it. And it's like, you got to do it, dude. And, you know, we're, we're constantly kind of button heads on it. And that's not the way to be because then he's going to have a con confrontational outlook in life he's going to argue about things that he doesn't want to do and it I, the whole thing it's just amazing what these kids have to go through um again my son because he's a perfectionist he gets very mad and he has an anger problem because of it and so it's like the whole thing it's it's amazing what atypical students have to go through and what they're going to have to overcome especially on their own just just to fit in with typical life so well i i think you know the world we're coming into is a lot better for them to you know find their way than it was a lot more understanding well and there's just more jobs available for them that mm. are you know out of the box i mean especially with covid people will work from home forever yeah. more you know there will be some sort of like flex type thing, but mm -hmm. so many companies have discovered that their employees are more productive and it saves them money. Yeah. So, you know, um, like that gives them the flexibility to not have to necessarily be in an office, sitting at a cubicle all day, something like that. It's been so nice talking to you. And um, I just, wanted to thank you for donating a raffle and in addition to for doing the interview but um it says that you will offer a one coaching and strategy session to help with goal planning or just soundboard for communication oh communicating sorry um their concerns with their current situation i want to win this I <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I can totally do that. Um, a lot of parents that have neurotypical or atypical uh, kids, th they run into financial problems because they have to figure out who gets to work. Like we're at therapy four or five days a week. So either I work or my husband works. And then, you know, the other one is barely part time. So I want to be able to provide that to be able to either do budgeting strategy with them or finding other like just coaching them on different outside the box things that they wouldn't typically be able to come up with on their own. So uh, hopefully that'll help somebody. <laughs> yeah, that is awesome. Thank you so much for donating that to our listeners and we'll um, see who gets to win that. <laughs> All right. And thank you again for doing the interview. 
You're welcome. It was fun. <laughs> yeah, it was a lot of fun. <laughs>